Welcome to the Different Functional Podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of trauma recovery and being neurodivergent in a neurotypical world. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about some of the ways in which neurotypical society gaslights neurodivergent people. I am Autumn, the older sister, and to start this episode out, I'm going to share one of the gaslighty phrases that I hear pretty frequently that drives me insane. And that is, we all struggle with that. And like many gaslighty phrases, on the surface, it seems like a nice thing. It seems like, oh, we're all connected. It's okay. We're all human. We all struggle. But really, when somebody says we all struggle with that, what they are saying is, well, I don't see that as a significant problem in my life. So it shouldn't be a significant problem in your life. I have had to deal with something similar and it didn't bother me. Therefore, it shouldn't bother you. And to me, what this sounds like is, you know, one night I, I woke up, I was getting out of bed, I had to go to the bathroom, I stepped on a Lego, okay? It was horrible. I couldn't use my foot for like five minutes. I was hopping around on one leg. So obviously, I completely understand what it means to only have one leg. And I don't see why you can't climb the stairs because I can climb the stairs. And I had that one experience where I couldn't use my foot for like five minutes. So it doesn't make sense that with only one leg, you can't climb the stairs as easily as I did. I don't have quite as strong of a response to that as you do, but I am often amused by those situations because I know what a fallacy it is to tell somebody that you understand what they're going through just because you think you've had an experience that is similar to theirs. I understand what a fallacy that is because we have no fucking clue what other people are actually going through. We can't see inside of them. We can't understand in the way that they understand. But I do like gauging how close people are to the mark. There's a huge difference between the people that are like, oh, we all struggle with that. And I can see the look on their face and they're really chipper about it. And they're like, see, we're connecting. We relate. I have a hard time too. Versus the people that actually struggle and they get like that thousand yard stare. And I'm like, yeah, you probably actually do get what I'm talking about. Not not Chipper McGee over there. I don't think they actually understand what I'm talking about. I am Ivy, the younger sister. And probably the gaslighty phrase that bothers me the absolute most as a neurodivergent person, and I have gotten this all my life, is you dress inappropriately. I have gotten in trouble at school. I have gotten in trouble at jobs for not dressing appropriately. And here's the thing. Like a lot of the time people think that I'm either being like sloppy. Like when I worked at the jail, I got written up so many times for uniform violations because I wouldn't iron my uniform. But to me, that was stupid. I spend all day in a jail. I work in the booking department. I am actively like wrestling with drunk people when they come in. I have gotten period blood on this uniform multiple times before. I don't see the point in ironing it. It's gonna get gross anyway. So I either get this kind of like mentality that I'm sloppy or that I dress too provocatively because my clothes are generally very form-fitting. But here's the thing. My clothes are form-fitting because of my sensory issues. And I wanted to hug my body like a glove, not overly tight, but like hug my body like a glove so I can forget that it's even there while still feeling covered 
and support it. That's probably the thing that gets me the most. She's like, just leave me alone. Like, I don't care what your your rules are about modesty. I don't care what you think about how nice somebody's clothes look or what brand they are. That does not matter to me. I am dressing for efficiency and for my sensory issues. Thank you very much. Move along. I can totally relate to that. I think I get dress code violations the most because I'm told I have to wear shirts with sleeves. And when I wear a short sleeve shirt, my face overheats. When my face overheats, I get a headache. When I get a headache, I lose functioning for three days. Like I can literally not stand up because the nausea and dizziness is so bad. I just fall on my face. And so I usually just ended up wearing short sleeves and then yanking them up into sleeveless shirts. Which pissed everybody off. And then they thought I was trying to be a rebel. And I'm like, no, I'm just trying to maintain functioning and not end up homeless due to missing work. Yeah, you know, the only thing that saves me from that one is the fact that I am a massage therapist. Because anybody who tries to start shit with that, I'm like, no, you don't understand. As a massage therapist, I'm not just using my hands. I'm using my forearms, my elbows. I'm like using my whole upper arm sometimes. I can't be getting oil all over my clothes worse than I already do. Because then I'll look even more sloppy. Is that what you want? I don't think that's what you want. So I, I can kind of get away with that one. Massage therapists can get away with wearing sleeveless shirts. And that part is pretty nice because I don't even know that I own any shirts with sleeves anymore. <laughs> and, you know, all of that also is kind of why I say that gaslighting, at least from my perspective, is so pervasive part of the neurodivergent experience because whether it's something super tiny like what kind of shirt you wear up to your general experience of life there's somebody out there saying oh no you're not actually perceiving it correctly now before we jump into the main content of today's episode we did want to provide a couple disclaimers really quickly because as neurodivergent people that's what we do we over explain in hopes to be well understood. The first of these disclaimers is our use of the terms neurodivergent and neurotypical. We do understand these are not scientifically based terms and they are oversimplifications of things. The conversation about neurodivergent and neurotypical and what that actually looks like is a nuanced conversation. But in order to make this a conversation that we could actually have within the time frame we're allowing ourselves, we do need to provide some simplification. So we are looking at the idea of neurotypical being the average normative brain, if you were, and neurodivergent, well, being the rest of us that are wired a little bit differently. And our main focus of neurodivergence today will be on ADHD and autism, though I do feel like a lot of these gaslighty phrases will also apply to other diagnoses, if you will, under the neurodivergent umbrella, such as borderline personality disorder, PTSD, bipolar, etc. So the second disclaimer we wanted to talk about was our use of the word gaslighting. And this is more to provide a definition of this term so you can really understand what we're talking about because the word gaslighting is really overused and misused a lot. And so if you Google gaslighting, an article by Psychology Today will pop up, or at least it did when I searched for it. And I love the definition they'd offered here. And it says, victims of gaslighting are deliberately and systematically fed false information that leaves them to question what they know to be true often about themselves. They may end up doubting their memory, their perception, and even their sanity. And this is the definition of what we mean by gaslighting. As I said earlier, our society, for the most part, is set up on a neurotypical pattern. But the neurodivergent brain is designed, wired, shaped, created differently. It leads to a whole different set of perceptions, sensory experiences, beliefs, behaviors, etc. that are drastically different from the neurotypical 
norm. And because our society is set up on the neurotypical and society's entire basis is to maintain the status quo, anytime a neurodivergent person tries to express their unique or different mindset, perception, belief, behavior, whatever it may be, we are gaslighted into trying to be neurotypical. We are told that our perceptions, our beliefs, our behaviors are wrong. They are bad. They are broken. And that, we believe, is not necessarily the case. As the motto of our show is, we are different, not defective. And that leads us into our third and final disclaimer before we jump into the content today. And that is the fact that we did try to pull in as much scientific evidence as we could today. And we will be putting this up on our resources page, any of the articles that we reference here today. Part of the problem though is that the scientific community researches neurodivergence with the eye of eradication. They want to eliminate these behaviors and troublesome symptoms that bother other people in society or that make us not fit in with the society. That means that there are a lot of concepts that are very important and very relevant to neurodivergent people that are simply not being researched. And so while we did pull in as many scientific peer-reviewed journal articles as we possibly could, we did also have to turn to the neurodivergent community at large because there are just so many topics that are not being researched that are important to us. And so we've combined both the scientific papers we can find as well as information we've received from experts in the field, as well as just personal accounts and stories to try to help you understand that if you are neurodivergent, no, you're not crazy. And yes, your perceptions, thoughts, and beliefs are valid. All right, so now with all that being said, let's go ahead and jump into the meat and potatoes of today's episode and talk about some of the ways in which we are gaslit. And we organized a lot of this around specific phrases that we end up hearing a lot in one way or another. And these are obviously not all of the ways in which we're gaslit. They're just a few of the main ones that end up popping up, at least in Ivy's and I's life, a lot. The very first one is you're lazy. And I feel like this one gets applied to ADHD a lot, but because neurotypical society is all about being polite and nice, they usually don't come out and say it. What, what do you usually hear on this, Ivy? It's not usually like, oh, Ivy, you're lazy, but what kind of phrases do you hear that basically convey that same message to you? For me personally, what I get more often is you're so busy all the time. How did you not get anything done? And I do think there are some ADHD people who actually do get accused of being lazy because they get kind of that paralysis where they just they, they just end up kind of sitting around either scrolling on their phone or doing something that makes it look like they are lazy when they're not. They're just frozen, essentially. But for me, I am somebody who is constantly go, 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 go all the time. I don't sit still well. I have a lot of restless energy, so I'm always doing things. But... There are lots of things that I'm supposed to be doing that do not get done and especially don't get done on the timeline that is expected of me. So what I often get is things like, why did you clean the entire house from top to bottom, like on your hands and knees, scrubbing with a toothbrush, but you didn't make the one phone call that I needed you to make? That is a good question, my friend. Uh, and let me tell you, it's because doing that one thing you wanted me to do, that one phone call, the pressure of your expectation, that's something in and of itself. But the other part of it is you don't understand how crippling it is for me to make a phone call. I cleaned the whole house because I was trying to avoid making that phone call because cleaning the entire house with a toothbrush 
is more tolerable to me than making a phone call and talking to another human being. But I do often get that like, how are you so busy all the time, but you're not actually productive? That's the main way that I get it. It's like, you didn't do the things that I wanted you to do. You did everything else. Thanks a lot. I didn't need that done, but you didn't do the one thing I needed you to do. Well, maybe you should do the one thing you needed done then. <laughs> I can definitely relate to that. And with the autism, I, I feel like for the most part, and this is a very global statement, and so there's going to be a lot of times this does not apply. So we get this a little bit less, but at some point, even the autistic people will get to the point where they get paralysis or they get burnt out and they're not able to do things that the rest of the world sees as easy, which is just an easy task. You just have to brush your teeth. You just have to clean the house. You just have to make that phone call. You just, just implies that it is simple. What you're implying with this statement, when your typical society is implying with this, is that all of these things are super easy. And so therefore we should just be able to do them. And so obviously there's something wrong with us that we're not doing it. Because the neurotypical person and myself are exactly the same. And therefore I must be going out of my way to fail to do the thing that they wanted to do. I was just cleaning the house instead of making the phone call to piss you off. What other explanation could there possibly be? But I just wanted to piss you off. That's obviously it, right? Yeah, because phone calls are the most simple thing in the world. It should be easy for everybody to make a phone call. There are so many things that I should be able to do because they're so easy and yet I don't get them done. My favorite thing though is because Calvin has some of the same thing that I do. So when we go to a, go to a store and we're looking for a thing and neither of us knows where it is, what's the easiest solution to that? The easiest solution is you ask an employee where that thing is. But we'll keep trying to pass the buck to each other. Be like, oh, I have to go to the bathroom. You should ask an employee where that thing is. And then you get back in the bathroom and they haven't asked. And you know they're not going to. And you're not going to either. We have literally before spent an hour in a store looking for an item that we could have easily found if we had just talked to an employee. But neither of us is willing to do it. Should be really easy. Should be really simple. It's really dumb to not just ask the employee where that item is but I'm not going to do it. And I know that neurotypical people don't understand that because the easiest thing is to just ask for help. I'm not going to fucking do that. I'm not going to have a conversation with an employee. I'm not even going to risk being in a conversation with an employee. I will actively avoid employees who see me looking for things and ask me if I need help. Nope, I'm not even going to go there. Like, no, I'm, I'm fine. I'm just looking around. It's obviously not actually that easy or that simple for me, because if it was, I would take the path of least resistance there and ask for the employee to help me find the item so that I could get out of the store and get more done that day. That's why I didn't make the phone call. I was too busy looking for an item in a store that I refused to ask the uh, employee for help to find. That's why I didn't get your phone made. <laughs> Another valid reason. But again, it's that idea that all of these things are simple and easy because we are the same as neurotypical people. And so the difficult level of any particular task is completely equitable. And therefore, us failing to do it falls completely and totally on us. And so let's go ahead and bring in some of the science. And this is a direct quote, and we'll be putting all of this up on our uh, resources page for this here. All right, and so I actually have a direct quote here, and this is from the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, okay? And they said directly, scientists have shown that there are differences in the brain size, networks, neurotransmitters, and brain development of children with ADHD. 
Okay, so what does this mean if you have ADHD? You don't just grow out of this as you grow older. What this means is that the very size of your brain, the physiological makeup of your brain is different than a neurotypical person. It means that the networks you established, it means that the levels of neurotransmitters that you have in your system, and it means that the ways that your brain develops and when it develops are different than the average population. Okay, so right there, we are literally wired differently. So if you have ADHD and somebody says, oh, well, my experience is the same as yours and they don't have this, they are neurotypical. No, they're not. They are not having the same experience with this. And then if you want to look at another study that was done, so another one of these fancy scientific papers, when it talks about ADHD, they found that individuals with ADHD are hyposensitive to dopamine. So, I mean, that should tell you something right there. It should tell us something. I think I know what that would mean, but can you explain what it what that actually looks like for somebody to be hyposensitive to dopamine? See, and again, that's me assuming my perspective makes sense to the world when in fact it doesn't because apparently not everybody has a master's in mental health counseling and has a niche interest in psychology. So apparently they don't know what that means. And so that's on me. But um, hyposensitive means that you're not sensitive enough to dopamine. And dopamine, to really simplify it, is our motivation neurotransmitter. Okay. And so if I am a neurotypical person and Ivy has ADHD and I eat a cookie, I will get five happy points from this. That cookie is five happy points worth of rewarding, which makes me want to eat the cookie again. Ivy, because she's not as sensitive to dopamine, eats the cookie if she's lucky and she has nothing else going on. So she gets one happy point. She gets one happy point from the cookie and I get five happy points from the cookie. Well, what if we turn that cookie into having small talk, making a phone call, finding an item in the store, brushing your teeth, any one of these tasks, right? We are automatically rewarded by our brains for completing these tasks. And according to the study, ADHD are hyposensitive. They're not sensitive enough to the dopamine in their system. So even if, which there's questions about that, that Ivy and I would have the same amount of dopamine because it's likely that she probably has less than I do as somebody with ADHD compared to a neurotypical person. The reality is, is she's not getting rewarded for the tasks she's doing. If I brush my teeth, I get a dopamine point. If I make a phone call, I get three dopamine points. If I have a small talk conversation, I got eight dopamine points. All of a sudden, I have all of this rewarding stuff that keeps me coming back and doing these activities. It's like getting paid to do your job. If you showed up at a job you hated, that you didn't want to do, that was full of stuff that annoyed the shit out of you, and they didn't pay you, why would you keep showing up? Why would you keep doing it? Like, logically, that makes sense, right? Well, Ivy's brain there's a good chance that she's not getting paid for the activity she's doing. So when she makes that call, she may not be rewarded at all. All she lost was resources. She lost time, she lost mental health, she lost energy, she lost motivation to do something else in her life, and she wasn't rewarded in no way whatsoever to make that call. So why should she even want to do that? Kind of wondering now if that's part of the reason why I'm cranky so much of the time and if it might explain some of my flat affect and monotone voice. It's, you know, 98% of me all the time. <laughs> kind of wondering about that now. I'm just not getting rewarded for anything. Nobody's paying me for anything <laughs> except for massage. I do get paid for that. And that does give me a somewhat decent dopamine <laughs> Must be why I keep doing it. And I know this sounds ridiculous, but I actually know a person in my life that has ADHD. And this is how little dopamine they give. Because, okay, we'll all agree 
drugs, for the most part, are very rewarding. That's why we do drugs. That's why drugs are addictive, okay? Well, this person was doing marijuana because they wanted to improve various things in their life. It was legal in the state. They decided they would want to try and do marijuana. They found it was really helpful. They also found they couldn't consistently do it after a couple weeks because it wasn't interesting enough. Okay, this is the ADHD brain. Brains are supposed to be naturally addicted to and rewarded by drugs. And this person's brain is so hyposensitive to dopamine that drugs were not rewarding enough to keep doing them. In order to keep doing the amount of marijuana necessary to maintain the behavioral changes they needed, they had to consistently and continuously change up the devices, change up the, the strain, change up the way they lit it. They had to create ways to make it entertaining enough and rewarding enough that they could do what they needed. And that's something that you're supposed to want to do. <laughs> you're supposed to want to do them. And the ADHD brain is so hyposensitive. It was like, nah, I, I don't really find that very rewarding after all. Really? I'm very amused by that because there are so many things that are supposed to be enjoyable. And when I do them, I'm like, yes, this is enjoyable. But getting up the motivation to do the enjoyable thing is usually like insurmountable. The, the number of times I have opportunities to do things that I know for a fact I will enjoy and I don't do them because I don't have the motivation to do the enjoyable thing. And I kind of wonder too, if that's a big part of the reason why ADHD people, why we bounce around between different subjects of interest so much because nothing can maintain our interest for very long because we get bored with it or it stops being enjoyable enough for us to feel motivated and have enough incentive to keep doing this thing that was enjoyable before. Oh, that's definitely a huge chunk of it. I mean, if you are hyposensitive to dopamine, if you have ADHD, what you are doing and the community calls it dopamine mining. You're essentially continuously looking for ways to increase your dopamine. And it's not so that you can be happy or you can feel good and have those little happy reward points. You're doing it because you literally don't have enough to function adequately in society as it is established. So yes, you go and down the rabbit hole of researching, I don't know, behind the scene porn drama or whatever it happens to be, or you learn how to build your own bow and string it because you're trying to create enough dopamine to just exist. Like that's pretty much what's going on from my understanding. Why you gotta be calling out my interests like that? <laughs> And then that doesn't even get into, um, let's say, the more mundane tasks. So I think a lot of people would agree brushing your teeth, for most of us, not very rewarding. Doing these little things we have to do every day aren't rewarding. And even neurotypicals would be like, yeah, but I don't get anything out of it. I still do it. It's not a big issue. So why is it so hard for somebody that has ADHD to brush their teeth? Why is it so difficult for them to get out of bed on time? Why is it so difficult to do these just daily things that always have to get done? Just You just do them. They're habits. You do them enough and they become habits. Right? Isn't that how that works? Uh, is it? <laughs> is that is that how that works? <sighs> well, uh, apparently, for neurotypical people, that's how habits work. And this is something I wasn't able to find any scientific research on because, again, this is something that interests the neurodivergent community, not the scientific community. But what I was finding was a lot of information from neurotypical people that say, "Oh yeah, a habit. It's automatic. I do it without thinking about it." It's just something that happens on a regular basis. And essentially what more and more people as we're deep diving into this conversation are saying, as a neurotypical person, it happens automatically. As a neurodivergent person, and this applies from my understanding to autistic people and other neurodivergences as well, 
we never really form habits. Every single task we have to do, we have to initiate that task in our head. And so when we have a habit, let's say it takes a quarter of our motivational points to get us to do that because it's automatic. It just happens. It's like change. It's like throwing a couple pennies. It's no big deal. When you have to task initiate, that takes two motivation points right off to get the ability to do that task. And so if we can't actually form habits, that means every single tiny task that we are doing requires who knows how much, because this isn't into numbers, but if we were to quantify it, is it twice as difficult, 10 times as much energy just to get that done? And so if you have a neurotypical brain and you compared it to Ivy's brain or my brain, and this person brushes their teeth, what took them maybe, like I said, a quarter resource point could take four or 10 or eight from Ivy and I. And when neurotypical people think that you think the same way they do, that you have the same perception, that you have the same experiences, they're gonna call you lazy. They're gonna not understand why you didn't just do that simple thing because what they're not seeing is your brain is not their brain. And your brain literally may not be able to do that. Or if it is, it takes a hundred times more effort than theirs did. You know, I find that interesting, those points that you were making there. And I don't, I'm not going to pretend that I'm speaking for all neurodivergent or even all ADHD people here, but it does make me very aware of something that I notice in my own life. And that is that I have like these rituals, these routines that I do, but you're right. It's not like it's autopilot. It's I have to actively consciously thinking think about doing those things every day no matter how many times i do them it is still an active conscious effort and process for me to do them and if anything gets thrown off it can throw off my entire day like my morning routine i am not a morning person i'm barely functional in the morning as it is and so i have to do everything in a very specific order when i get up and i wash my face and then i floss my teeth and i brush my teeth and then i grab my skincare products, all of my serums, and then my sunblock, and then my moisturizer. And I have to do all of those things in a very specific order. If I do any of those things in the wrong order, I have now completely thrown myself off and I have to start over a lot of the time. I can't just pick up where I left off. I can't just be like, oh crap, I did that backwards today. No, I have to wash my face all, all over again because I put things on in the wrong order. And then it throws off my routine for the whole rest of the day because I get so stuck on that thing that I got funky earlier on the day that I didn't do in the right order that it's kind of like thrown off my routine for the rest of the day. And I have to think extra hard to make sure that I stay on track with all of my other stuff. And it can make me feel extra forgetful and like brain fog and I start to dissociate and all of those things all because I put my sunblock on before I put on my serum and I feel ridiculous every time. But it doesn't change the reality that that one simple mix up in my routine can transform my entire day. I can be running behind schedule and forgetting things all fucking day because I did that one mix up at the very beginning of my morning with something that should not matter. And I kind of wonder if that is, one, if that is a relatable experience to other neurodivergent people, but also if that ties into the things that you were just talking about, Autumn. 
Oh, it most definitely does. That's how most neurodivergent people manage their life. Because they can't form habits, they set up routines, they set up rituals that become very important because one, this is how we get anything done. If I want my teeth brushed, it has to be part of this routine and ritual. You know, let's let's translate this into a resource that actually makes sense to most people. Let's say it's money. And let's say in order for you to do any one of these basic ridiculous tasks that you talk about, brush your teeth, put on your moisturizer, put on your sunblock, because you are ADHD, you have to pay $5 every time you want to do a task. So if you want to brush your teeth, that's going to be $5. You want to put on sunblock, $5. You want to put on some other cream on your face, $5. So right now you're paying $15 because of how your brain is set up. Neurotypical brain, each one of those tasks only costs them a buck. So one buck for that, one buck for this, one buck for that. So they're spending $3 to initiate each of those tasks. Because their brain can actually form habits and they become automatic, that task becomes a 25 cent thing, another 25 cents, another 25 cents. They can go in and just throw a quarter at each one of those tasks. Because you can never form a habit, because it's likely that our brains are not created that way, you never get down to that quarter. Every single thing is always going to cost you $5, $5, $5. Because we have a limited amount of resources, whether you're neurotypical or neurodivergent, there's only so much energy, time, etc., to go around. We get around that by lumping them together. I pay my $5 and I do all six things. But those six things can only be done in this order because once you fall off that ritual, it's no longer an autopilot and I have to pay my $5 again to do that. Which if you ended up getting thrown off and you couldn't start your routine all the way over, you paid your $5 initially, you didn't have another $5 left for the rest of your day. That was all you had for the whole rest of your day to deal with all of life. And you had to pay that to put on sunblock. And so that's why we use those rituals. We do it to reduce the amount we're having to pay out in energy, in motivation, in emotional wherewithal, in whatever you want to call it. That's why we have the routines and that's why it can be so damaging for us when those routines are fucked up because now we're back to putting down five bucks per task again. And for those of you that know anything about Spoonies and not having enough resources to go around, most of us just don't have the energy for them. Yeah, and then if you have any environmental factors also influence you, you're just racking up overdraft fees. Because I love to travel, but every time I travel, no matter how organized of a person I am in my own space, my own environment, you try to get me in like a hotel room where I'm living out of a suitcase for a week, I am like the Tasmanian devil. I will, will just destroy that hotel room. My, my stuff is thrown all over the place. I can't figure out what the fuck I'm doing. Like I'm discombobulated for the entire time I'm traveling, no matter how much I love it. Super stressful for me because the environment changing gets me all sorts of screwed up and I don't have my routines and I don't have my, my little space for every little thing. And I'm not doing everything in the order that I normally do. And I'm not getting up at the same time and going to bed at the same time. I'm not doing all of those things. And so then I just rack up all those overdraft fees. And by the time I get back from a vacation, not only am I exhausted, but I also have very little memory of the actual time that I spent on vacation because I was spending so much time and so many of my resources just trying to find some semblance of order again. So yeah, it's, it, it is a thing to live with neurodivergence and constantly be shelling out $5 here, $5 there that you don't have and ending up with all those overdraft fees. And then you feel like a failure, which helps oh so much 
really, really helps. I love feeling like a failure. I don't know about you guys. It's like the best part of being neurodivergent is feeling like a failure 99.9% of the time and explaining to people what a failure you are and then trying to make you feel better about it. I'm like, no, I don't. I'm not looking for you to make me feel better about it. I'm trying to explain to you that I will fail you. It's just that simple. That's that's a thing that's going to happen. It's a fact. If you join up with me, not only will we be dealing with my overdraft fees, but I will start pay. I, I will start paying from your pocket too, and <laughs> you will deal with overdraft fees because I will drag you down. <laughs> and you know, I feel like a couple of things you said during this conversation, I want to point out. And one of them was, I know it's stupid. And the other one you said is that I will fail you, and I love feeling like a failure. Like those two concepts right there. Those are how the neurotypical society gaslights because a lot of people are like, well, how can you say it's a superpower if you're just constantly failing and doing stupid things? I am constantly failing because I exist in a society that refuses to accommodate me. So when I only have one leg, you refuse to see I only have one leg. You refuse to give me a prosthetic. You refuse to give me a mobility aid to try and get up the stairs. And you refuse to give me any more time to get up the stairs. And so, yes, when you set a person up like that and you refuse to accommodate and you refuse to acknowledge their differences, of course, they're going to fail. You set them up with an impossible task. All right. So let's go ahead and move on to another one. And this one is usually comes up in the autistic conversation. But I've actually seen this a lot with ADHD people and other neurodivergent people as well. And that is the idea that we communicate poorly. And I say this is really big in autistic communities. That is part of actually diagnosing autism is the fact that we communicate so poorly. And there, I feel like there's a lot of them that go into this. So I'm going to kind of touch on to them piece by piece. But one of the first ones that we get way too often is you are too direct when communicating. And this doesn't just apply to autistic people. I've heard way too many ADHD people accused of being way too direct. You're too direct when communicating. And I find this really hilarious to me because what we're actually doing from our perspective is we're just communicating. We're effectively communicating. We're providing the information necessary for this interaction. But because we're providing it all verbally, instead of in, you know, freaky little dances and innuendos and subcontext, it's too direct. But it makes me laugh because there's actually a study, which, you know, we'll put up on the resource page. In the study, what they did was they essentially played the telephone game with neurotypicals and with individuals that are autistic. Now, the telephone game is where you get a message whispered in your ear, and then you whisper it to the next guy, and the next guy whispers it, and the next guy whispers it, and the next guy whispers it, and at the end, it's all a laugh of like, haha, what did we think they said? Well, in this case, they were actually trying to get the message conveyed with as little data loss as possible, so it's still a clear message at the end. The autistic people essentially won this game again and again. Because when you gave autistic person one the information, they clearly and effectively communicated it to person two. And that person clearly and effectively communicated it to three, four, five, six, seven. And so by the end of the line, the majority of that message was still understandable and relevant to the initial message. Now, I will also say that the study showed that when you had neurotypical people playing this game, and it was all neurotypical people, there was also not a lot of message degradation. They got the message correctly to the end. What was interesting, though, is that when you mixed autistic people and neurotypical people, 
the message degraded quite a bit and there are quite a bit of alterations and changes and all of the participants involved said they didn't feel a lot of rapport with the person trying to give them the message which indicates not necessarily that autistic people have a difficult time communicating because apparently we communicate quite well with each other and you can see this in the neurodivergent community that we agree we understand each other quite well. It's the neurotypical population does not like the way we communicate. And instead of accommodating or learning to meet us somewhere in the middle, obviously the fault of communication then lies completely on our shoulders and it's something we have to deal with you know, and the thing, too, is that like if people aren't bitching that we're too direct and too blunt with our communication, the other thing that they love to do is accuse us of explaining too much, which is the one that I get a lot because I am not succinct at all with my communication. I try to be direct, but it tends to go off the rails quite a bit. So what I get from people more is you are explaining it too much. There's way too much information. I did not need all of that information. Motherfucker, yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> that is the internal response I have every time. You think you don't need that much information, but you need that much information. I'm giving you context for the information that I am giving you because otherwise I am giving you this oversimplified statement. I don't want you taking the simple statement that I made and reading between the lines and making it into something that it's not. I think that, at least in my opinion, and this is not scientifically backed, this isn't a community thing, this is just an autumn thing. I think that's what's happening is a lot of neurotypical people stop listening because they have this neurotypical mentality and our society is set up in a way to eliminate from view anything uncomfortable or different. And so it never occurs to them that things are different. And so when you try to tell them something, they just hear what they expect and they never take time to hear what you've said. Because I've had conversations that have almost sounded, you know, this is analogous, but they've almost sounded exactly like this. Hey. There's a cow over there, says Autumn, the neurodivergent person. Neurotypical person says, yeah, I like horses. No, it's it's a cow. Yeah, no, I'm really cool with horses. No, it has horns. It goes moo. Dude, why are you giving me so information? I fucking love horses. I get what the fuck a horse is. I'm like, oh my God, it's not a horse. It's a cow. And they're like, yeah, I get it. It's a horse. And I'm like, oh my God. And I start losing my shit. Like you can see how your reality starts getting questioned of yourself because you're like, no, it's literally a cow. I tried to tell you there were horns, that it was pooping and patties. Like, I'm giving you as much information so that you can perceive that a cow exists as possible. But because you have this idea that it's a horse in your head and you refuse to move from it, you think I'm over-explaining horses. And all I'm trying to get you to understand is that there's a cow. Like, that's, that's my experience with it. You know, where this most often has ended up being a real issue for me is in romantic relationships. I am the queen of disclaimers. I give you all the information up front. I tell you all my baggage, all my issues, where they come from, at what age I developed this, what my family history of this thing is. I give you all that information very early on in the relationship because I want you to go in and make an informed choice about whether or not to date me. One of my things is touch aversion. I am not a touchy-feely person. I'm not a particularly affectionate person. I told you that in the beginning. I told you I was touch aversive. I told you I'm not really touchy feely. I told you I'm not really into cuddling. And I told you why. I told you all of the reasons why I had this issue forever ago. And I've reiterated that multiple times. And yet two years down the road, you're like, but you're not cuddling with me. Yeah, I know. And if you'd been paying attention, you would have known it was always going to be that way. Because I've been telling you that forever now 
And so for me, it's like, even when I do give plenty of information, you weren't listening. You weren't listening. You weren't paying attention. Maybe you were hoping things would change. Maybe you were hoping that you would be the magical exception to the rule. I don't know. But that has happened to me in every single romantic relationship that I've had, and even some friendships. And, and part of me wonders sometimes also if neurotypical people are even able to conceive of information outside of the neurotypical view at all, because sometimes I really wonder about that. This kind of ties into another communication issue, which we get blamed of, is you need too much direction. And this, I get this all the time in jobs. And so supervisor, manager will say, I need you to do a task. And I'm like, okay, excellent. How do you want me to do this? What are what are the parameters? And they're like, oh, just do it. Here's the thing. And if you are neurodivergent, let me know if this is your experience. Anytime a neurotypical person has ever said to you, oh, no, just do it however you want. Has it ever, ever in the entirety of your life been correct? Because never in the entirety of my life has it been what they wanted. Because it seems to me that one of the reasons that Ivy provides all those disclaimers and I provide all that information, part of it is so that I can try to get you to understand and see me. But the other part of it for me is I'm being polite. I'm giving you enough information so that you know how to operate in this scenario. Because for me, being neurodivergent, let's say you don't know how to fly a plane and you get into the cockpit and your supervisor says, all right, so you just, you know, press some buttons, you pull a couple of levers, you got this, pat you on the arm and walks out. And now you have to figure out how to fly this plane by yourself. That's probably not going to work very well. But for a lot of us neurodivergent people, that's what it feels like because there are so many parts of neurotypical society that do not make objective, logical sense. And so we're left just trying to interpret a language we can't understand, some magical runes. There was a dance portion in there we didn't get. There was something to do with tone that we didn't pick up on, possibly, or... More likely we did pick up on it, but there's 74 different meanings and all have equitable value of what it could possibly mean. So yeah, we need a lot of direction because we don't think the way you do. And so when we do something without the direction, it's going to be wrong. And no, we don't actually like feeling like failures. At least I don't. And so yes, I ask for too much direction and I also give too much direction. And I've actually had to pull back from this a little because what I was doing was very egocentric in where I need lots of information in order to operate. And so I would give my boyfriend lots of information so he could complete a task. I would be like, we need to do this task. I need you to do this for me. And then I would say, here are about 74 different paragraphs of information relevant to the task, which was a bit much for him. It would have been perfect for me, possibly another autistic person, but it was a bit much. And so he and I had to play around to figure out how much information was needed and how much information wasn't. But again, that's part of that accommodation. And it, and it goes the other way, too, because with my boyfriend, he came at it with an egocentric view of, yeah, hey, we need to get this task done. Can you do that for me? And I'm just left staring at him, not being able to do the task because I don't understand what he wants. And so we were able to accommodate to the point that neither of us are providing too much direction. We're just giving the appropriate amount of information needed to complete the task. This is not in our notes, but I am somewhat amused by this because the more that I'm thinking about it, like you were saying that uh, it, jobs that you've had, they tell you that you need too much direction. And one of the bits of constructive feedback I've gotten at jobs is that I don't take direction well. I don't want a ton of explanations and things like I will watch you do it and then I will decide if it's worth doing it the same way. And if it's not worth doing it the same way, I will do it a different way. And that has gotten me into trouble before. 
it places. It's For me, it's not that you need too much direction. It's that you don't take direction well. You do things your own way. And we don't do it like that here. And I'm like, well, you should do it that way here because your way is stupid. And I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Which I imagine there's probably a fair number of uh, ADHD people out there who probably can relate to that one. You know, that actually ties into the next gaslighty piece on our list, which goes into sense of justice. But before we get there, I did want to mention one more thing on communication, which I get this a lot. I am being disrespectful or I'm being judgmental because I ask questions. And so this is the other piece of that that I've only recently learned. Like I'm 40 years old. Last year, I learned that asking my manager or supervisor questions for additional guidance on a task is actually perceived as disrespectful because apparently, and I don't know how this is my fault, but apparently neurotypicals do not understand how questions work, okay? And this this is obviously not in the scientific research, but I, I will put up a blog that I felt reflects a lot of the neurodivergent community when it comes to this. Neurotypical people typically use questions to berate or to be invasive. So when you fail to do something and they're like, well, why didn't you get that done? The implied message is you failed to do that. They don't care why you didn't. And I'm like, do you understand what a question is? Because when you say, why did you not get that done? I'm going to tell you because you asked me a question. <laughs> and yes, I am one of the people that does not get rhetorical questions either. You asked a question. That's how a question works. You are requesting information from me like that is it and that's how i see it and that's how so many neurodivergent people see that and so that's why we ask questions because we're trying to understand in an environment that is not suited to us in an environment that does not come natural to us because neurotypicals have created it and then we get told we're being disrespectful we're being invasive because i i don't know i guess you guys don't know how questions work <laughs> which i don't get and so that's one that just amuses me and i again don't have the scientific study but Objectively, if I ask a question, I want information. I don't have a need to judge you. If I want to judge you for not doing a task, then I will say, you're a lazy ass. You should have fucking done the task. Like I've told my boyfriend that before. I'm like, well, get it done. Like I don't need your excuses. It's not fucking done. Like I just tell you that because again, that's what words are for. I'm not trying to like, I don't know, judge you for this. I just want to know why. Autumn, I just, I want to say you're communicating too directly there. <laughs> you're not following the rules. Questions are meant to be traps. That's what it is. They want to back you into a corner when they ask you why you didn't get the thing done. Because no matter what you say, it's going to be the wrong answer. I also get this a lot, the uh, being disrespectful. I have issues with authority. I get that on a lot of uh, constructive feedback. There are so many nice things about being self-employed and working in a field that's full of weirdos and nonconformists and misfits. It's one of the perks. It's kind of expected that you're going to be disrespectful of authority. But it, like Autumn, it's, it's for much the same sort of thing. Like, I will give you my answer for why I didn't get the task done. You're not going to like it. You're not going to appreciate it either way. I know this is a trap and I'm going to stare you down that, that's where it comes to uh for me with the the being disrespectful thing because i know it's a trap and my face can't hide the fact that i know it's a trap because then i give them a judgmental look it's like why are you doing this i'm just going to give you the answer the answer you don't want but to me it is a valid justifiable answer i have nothing more to give you 
I'll take care of the task when I take care of the task. That's all there is to, or you can find somebody else to take care of the task, or you can take care of the task. <laughs> this task is not pertinent or relevant to me. I have other things to do. <laughs> That's where the disrespect comes in for me. I don't play well with others. That's another one that I get too. I don't play well with others. Not team oriented. No, I am not. I have my own shit to do. You take care of your shit. I'll take care of my shit. That's that's that. I'm not going to like pussyfoot around and you're not going to trap me into a corner or trying to make me feel guilty for not doing one of your tasks because I'm sorry. Neurotypicals do that shit a lot too. They didn't get a thing done. Like your higher ups don't get a thing done. And so they like shove it down on the people that are underneath them. It's like, well, why didn't you do this thing? I don't know. Why didn't you do that thing? It's your job description, not mine. <laughs> this is why I don't survive in the corporate world. <laughs> but again, you, you can't you can't say that. And God forbid you do give them an answer because that's that's just an excuse after all. Okay, let's go ahead and go into the next one, which I said Ivy already touched on a little bit, which is you have an overdeveloped sense of justice. And it may seem kind of weird how Ivy choosing to do it her own way would tie into this concept of a sense of justice. Because a lot of times when we think of sense of justice, we think about autistic people. But this is also something ADHDers are accused of, and it ties right into that idea of doing things our own way. So now when the world says we have an overdeveloped sense of justice, that overdeveloped part is what I feel is gaslighting. All right, so a psychologist, Tara Vance, she proposed an identity model of autism that suggests autistic individuals base their identity on passion and values, whereas neurotypicals base their identity on social belonging. All right, I'm gonna say that one more time. Neurodivergent people, it is thought, base their identity on passion and values. Neurotypicals base their identity on social belonging. Now, if you really let that sink in, you're going to see how that affects so many things very differently. But when we're talking about a sense of justice, what this essentially means is that I find it less important to fit in than to do what I think is morally right. I find it less important to fit in than to do what objectively makes sense to do. I find it less important to fit in than to do what it is I need to do to manage my own resources. And that's why I say what Ivy said ties in because a lot of neurodivergent people, ADHD, autistic, whatever it might be, we look at a task and we go, okay, the way that I can do this best is by going A, F, G, K. And the neurotypicals say, no, it's gotta be A, B, C. It has to be A, B, C. And you're like, yeah, but we're trying to get to K and if I just skip this right here, go over there, under this, around there, I'm at K, and I got there in five minutes. But if I do it your way, it's going to take 40. And here's the thing, I don't care about fitting in. I base who I am, I base my identity on what I find interesting, and I base it on what I find moral. And if you disapprove of me for doing this in a way that makes it easy, that makes it more efficient, and that makes it a lot more fun, I don't give a fuck. That's kind of what it boils down to. And that's, I think, where they have issues with it is we're not willing to bend our opinions, our beliefs, our way of doing things in order to fit in. And that's why we have an overdeveloped sense of justice because we are unwilling to give up what we believe is morally correct stand simply to be accepted by the people around us. I think this is another one of those reasons why at least most of the neurodivergent people that I know, they have a very hard time working in like the corporate world and stuff like that because there are so many shady ass things that happen in the corporate world or in politics or so many 
areas of society. Like a lot of neurodivergent people are kind of oddballs. We are nonconformists. We don't fit in very well. And I do think part of it is because of that sense of justice that we have, because we see all the shady shit going on in the world and find that very disheartening. It doesn't have to be that way and it shouldn't be that way. And it's very hard for us to accept that it is that way. And those of us who can accept it, I, I'm going to include myself in here, become kind of overly cynical. I refuse to work in the corporate world. I refuse to engage much in politics because it's rigged. It's all shady. There's all of these terrible, unethical, inhumane things that happen in so many of these realms of society. And so I just don't want to be part of it. And I feel like a lot of people who are neurodivergent, we do struggle with like finding employment and things like that that actually suit us that we can live with ourselves having. Because so many of the jobs that are available are ones where we don't have a direct positive impact. And sometimes even the neutral impact feels like it's like worthless. Like I remember, Autumn, when you were working for that uh, the cable company or something and you were doing dispatch for the technicians to go out to people's houses. And I remember you talking about how you just wanted to like fucking kill yourself sometimes because you were doing nothing really. You spent all day, day in, day out, sending dispatchers to these people's houses who could not fucking live without cable for another five minutes. It was like the whole of their issues in life was they couldn't live without cable for another five minutes and it just felt so pointless. And when I worked in the corporate world at the trucking company, a lot of times I also felt that way. And I hated my job and I hated my life and I was fucking suicidal working in the corporate world. It wasn't until I got into my current field that I actually found a profession that I fit in well and that I didn't feel like I was selling myself out or compromising my values. Because with massage, I do get to have a very positive impact on people in a very direct one-on-one -on -one way. I do no harm in this profession and I'm not part of some shady dealings of higher ups who are just looking to increase the bottom line. And I feel like a lot of neurodivergent people do struggle with finding their place in the world because we do have that quote unquote overdeveloped sense of justice that makes it very difficult for us to live with ourselves and to take any pride or sense of accomplishment or joy in work that we can see the dark underbelly of. I would say that a lot of us out there do have trouble with that because I've, you know, trying to do the podcast and all that, I've been learning more about marketing and I get into the neurodivergent marketing community. And that is one of the biggest things they say is they hate selling stuff because we all know we have limited resources and it feels like theft trying to convince you to give me your money when you need that money for something else. And that's people freely giving of themselves and we still feel bad for it. And it's really hard. And again, if what I care about is morality, if what I care about is my passion, if what I care about is making logical objective sense, yeah, I, I have a really overdeveloped sense of justice and I am way too logical. Okay, so let's go ahead and move to the next one on our list. And this, again, has to do with socialization and it comes up a lot at work. And that is that we do not understand hierarchical relationships. It, 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 it gets thrown at autistics a lot. It, that we just, we don't understand hierarchical relationships. We can't pick up on that concept. But I would say also that ADHDers get this a lot, that you don't respect hierarchical relationships that you apparently see them, but you just don't respect them. And the reality is, is for many of us in the autistic community, it's the same way. <laughs> and this kind of goes back to that sense of justice, but we see the Erica relationships. We just think they're bullshit. Like it does not make sense to us, whether you're autistic, whether you're ADHD, that just because you're my boss, 
you're worth more than I am or my coworker is or the janitor is. We see Erica relationships, but we refuse to abide by them. And again, this is one that you have to go to the community for because they're not researching this scientifically. Because scientifically, we should all just accept Erica relationships. And when the guy in the nice white coat tells us to press the button, we should just press the button. That's how society works. And us ADHDers and us autistics and us neurodivergents are saying, but why am I pressing the button? Is it moral to press the button? And we're questioning the person in charge, which is a big no-no. And I want to give you a couple quotes from a couple people in the community that kind of explain this uh, concept a little bit better. One person says if they, autistic people, see it, they often reject it for being pointless, oppressive, or invalid. Another person, I don't think that these automatic hierarchies that spontaneously form whenever humans gather are good for our society. And I don't think society is made any better by trying to force people on the spectrum into understanding and accepting social rank. And so for me, this is a big one that's very dangerous gaslighting when you say, oh, you don't understand Erica relationships. Because we do. We're refusing to accept them. We're refusing to respect them. And even the idea of respect, we're refusing to acknowledge that they are deserving of respect at all. And that is very dangerous to society when we choose to question authority. This is one of the ones that has probably been the biggest thorn in my side throughout my entire life. Like when I was growing up, when I was in school, in church, and then as a working adult, I don't give a fuck about social rank. Most of the things that social rank are based on are things I have no respect for. I don't care if you have money. I don't care if you have fancy things. I don't care if you've been at this job 20 years longer than me. I don't care that, that you have been designated as a supervisor over me. I don't care. Respect is something you earn. And you earn it from me directly. Like, that's, that's how it works for me. I don't give a fuck about hierarchical structures because respect, in my mind, is something that is earned one-on-one -on -one between two individuals. I do not respect you purely because of your position or your money or what family you come from. None of those things matter to me. And that has been very difficult for me. And in a lot of arenas in my life, it was very difficult when I was in school. I'd get in trouble with teachers a lot because I didn't respect them. But it's like half of the teachers loved me because I did respect them because they gave me reasons to. And the other half of the teachers couldn't stand me because I didn't respect them. And in my mind, they gave me no reason to, so I'm not going to. And it's been the same way as a working adult. It, it really was a, the biggest issue for me when I worked at the jail. That was my first full-time position at any job. And I had not gotten a real good peg on how the working world worked. And, and if you don't like hierarchical structures, working at a jail, which is part of a law enforcement community, is not a good place to start let me tell you, because they really like their hierarchies and rank and position are really important in that world. And I did not fully grasp how important that was. And man, did I get written up for insubordination a lot. And I butted heads with a lot of supervisors. And it was the same thing. Some of them loved me because I respected them a lot because they gave me reasons to. And the other half of them couldn't stand me and thought I should be fired because I didn't show respect for their authority because they gave me no fucking reason to. And I do think this is a struggle for a lot of neurodivergent people. So many of the neurodivergent people that I am friends with have this struggle as well in their workplaces. 
Why am I supposed to take orders from you? You don't even know how this job is supposed to be done. You're giving me orders and you're micromanaging me and you know nothing about the position that I fill. Why should I listen to you? And this is a, such a common theme among the neurodivergent people that I have in my life. And it, and for me as well, I, get, I have gotten written up for insubordination so many times. It took a long time for me to find workarounds to actually deal with people in supervisory positions in a way that did not get me in trouble. And it is the best fucking thing about being self-employed is being your own boss, because if I'm going to call anybody a moron, it's me. And then I actually do have to work on my shit and get better at something. But that's fine. I can hold myself accountable. You can't hold another supervisor accountable because you're supposed to be under them. And I think this is why one of the reasons that this phrase is so gaslighting and potentially dangerous is because when we say you don't understand, it leaves us going, well, maybe we're not seeing something. Maybe there's something else going on here. And then we do start curving our morality or curbing our passions or curbing our logic a little to try to serve that erical relationship because apparently we're missing something. But the reality is, is I don't think we are missing something. And so when we listen to this idea that you don't understand, that you don't respect something worth respecting, that makes us feel like the bad person. But in reality, all we're saying is that all people are equal. And we will treat people well regardless. And we're not going to accept abuse from someone simply because they outrank us. And I feel like those are all things that neurotypicals would say as well. But then when you say it's the boss, they go, oh, well, if it's the boss, then well, there's nothing you can do. And I think us neurodivergent people say, no, I, I think there is something you can do. You could choose not to participate in that particular hierarchy <laughs> is what you could do. But again, that's why so many of us get fired and unemployed a lot. I think one of the other things that happens when we get gaslit in this way is that there are some of us who don't end up questioning ourselves and we don't think that we're missing something. We still feel like we're seeing the situation clearly, but we still end up curbing our morality or doing things that we're not comfortable with because we are financially dependent upon that job. And so we will force ourselves to respect authority that we don't actually respect to do things we're not comfortable doing, do things that are stupid and we know that they're stupid because we have to make a living. And I think that's part of the reason, not the only reason, and obviously, but I think that is one of the many reasons why neurodivergent people do seem to have, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but based on my own experience and the experiences of the people close to me, do have more issues with like depression and anxiety because we understand that we still have to exist in this world. To a certain degree, we still have to play by the rules of this world or we will not survive. But in order for us to survive, we often have to do things that go against our own sense of identity to do. And that is much harder, I think, for a neurodivergent person than it is for a neurotypical person to do. Because I think it's much harder for neurodivergent people to make excuses for themselves or to justify or to uh, validate why we are doing things that go so against the grain of everything that we are and everything that we believe in. And again, I tie that back into that idea of that overdeveloped sense of justice. And again, while that is just a theory, it would make so much sense. Because if you are basing your identity on social belonging, then when you have to curb your morality, when you have to make alterations to be part of that society, it doesn't feel like selling out. It doesn't feel like committing an immoral transgression against another human. But when you base your identity on your value system, you base your identity on your morality, then it does feel like selling out when you have to curb that 
in order to just exist in a society that's based on immorality. All right, so let's go ahead and move on to another one of the ways in which society gaslights neurodivergent people. And this one we hear a lot with autistics, but we also get this with ADHD people as well. You don't pick up on social cues. And this is actually part of the diagnostic criteria with autism is you don't socialize, like you can't understand what's happening here is what they're thinking. Well, the community and science is now starting to say maybe. The fact is that we do actually pick up on social cues. We just potentially pick up on them a lot more or we process them differently. All right, so now the ADHD and social cue thing isn't researched as much, so there's a lot less information out there about it. But one article I was able to find said this specifically. The results suggest that adults with ADHD focus on two many cues in social interactions, especially in valid ones. Okay, so to me, that's not like you're not picking up on the cues. It's not only are you picking up what they laid down, you're picking up all of the other shit they laid down and didn't even realize they laid it down. And then when it comes to autistic people, let me find this other article. Okay, and it says the results indicate that despite intact perceptual processing, the immediate involuntary interpretation of social cues can be compromised, which essentially means it's quite possible autistic people are actually picking up on the social cues. It's just we're not automatically processing them. We have to stop and think about it. And actually, this makes a lot more sense than the idea that we just don't pick up on social cues. Because when you look at the neurodivergent brain, it's starting to look like ADHD and autistic people actually have a lot more information, data, and sensory processing shit to deal with than your neurotypical brain. Because some studies have shown, and I'll have Ivy put one of these on our resources page, that a lot of neurodivergent brains don't do as much synaptic pruning. And so synaptic pruning is what happens when you get older and certain parts of your brain, they decide, oh, we don't really need those connections and little connections just die off. And so we have a lot less connections as we grow older. It's suggested that the neurodivergent brain doesn't do this. So there's actually hyper connectivity, hyper being way more connectivity than expected between different areas of the brain. And it's also been shown that autistic people produce more information when it rests. So when our brains are just resting, the neurotypical brain doesn't produce a lot of information, but the autistic brain produces a shit ton. And so the likelihood that autistic or ADHD people don't pick up on social cues is really kind of a naive and not well-researched statement. In fact, what's happening is we are maybe taking longer to process social cues and more realistically based, we're probably getting a lot more social cues than the neurotypical person thinks they're providing because they're working with subcontext and they're working with words and they're doing their little bee dance that suggests God knows what. And we pick up on that, but they think they're only giving us 20 cues of information, but it's quite possible that autistic and ADHD people are actually picking up on 200 cues of information. And then we're left to figure out what the fuck is relevant. And with autistic people, the studies are suggesting that we don't automatically figure it out. We have to stop and logically figure out what might be relevant in this situation. And while it didn't follow up on ADHD people, I kind of wonder if they're paying attention to irrelevant social cues, quote unquote, because it's the interesting ones. It's the one producing enough dopamine. So you cornered this poor ADHD person into this motivation resource draining small talk. 
And then all of a sudden they picked up on whatever their interest was, whether that was trauma or World War II, whatever it was, that's what they zone in on because they need to survive this interaction and you are stealing all their resources. So maybe they're just talking about what's interesting to them and trying to not die in the small talk you force them to have. See, all of that is actually pretty new to me. And that's definitely food for thought. And it's making me think more about so many of the social interactions that I have had and also think more about the common struggles and complaints that I hear from neurodivergent people when it comes to social interactions. Like one of the big ones that I think is probably true of all neurodivergent people, even the ones who do see themselves as more extroverted and social, is that by the end of that social interaction, when they go home, they are fucking exhausted. Even if they loved it while they were doing it, they are fucking exhausted. And now I can't help but wonder if part of that is because in those social interactions, we are taking in so much more information than the neurotypical person is. And that would just exhaust anybody after enough time, no matter how much maybe you thrive on social interaction. I am not one of those people, but I know there are neurodivergent people who do see themselves as more extroverted and social. And even those people, they, they seem like they need a decent amount of downtime. Like I've got one friend who I would say she is actually very social. She's recently been diagnosed with ADHD as an adult, but she does this thing where she'll go, 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 go and do all of these social things and she'll overbook herself for weeks on end. And then she disappears, drops off the map, doesn't interact with anybody at all for another few weeks. And I kind of wonder if part of the things that you're talking about there, we're taking in so much information and noticing so many cues and trying to process so much, if that's part of the reason why we get that fatigue. Whether you're an introverted or extroverted neurodivergent person, that seems to be a common thread among all of us that level of fatigue and exhaustion after social interactions because that sounds very taxing and demanding especially for autistic people with not being able to automatically process and make use of that information and then for the adhd folks who are constantly trying to to kind of chase that dopamine hit and also constantly trying to figure out which cues are actually valid and relevant and then trying to backpedal when they realize they've chosen the wrong social cue to focus on. That sounds fucking exhausting all the way around. And there are so many people in the community on, you know, the TikTok and the Facebook and the social media and stuff that this is what they relate to. They hear this and they're like, yes, this is what it's like. And it makes a lot of sense to me because apparently with my brain the way it is, there are so many many bits of data that are happening in an interaction. Like I'm seeing facial expression, I'm seeing the way you move, I'm seeing the increase in tone, I'm feeling the way your brain is attempting to loop with me, I'm feeling how you are feeling emotionally because I'm picking up on that and I have all of this stuff and I'm trying to figure out what you think is important and what you're trying to tell me because you can't just use your words. And then on top of all of that, I'm then trying to reflect back to you what you want to see from me, which is the masking, which is make sure I make the appropriate facial expression, make sure I keep an appropriate tone, make sure I have the appropriate space, make sure that my emotions look acceptable when they're coming out of my body for other people picking up on them. And so it is exhausting because not only am I trying to see all of this stuff and I'm having to process through it individually in real time, and then I'm also trying to act according to all of this to make you think I'm not insane so you'll continue talking with me or keeping me as an employee or as a friend or whatever it is I'm trying to fit in. 
that sounds incredibly exhausting. So I think we may be onto something with the level of fatigue and exhaustion that comes with this whole social interaction and seeing, uh, processing, understanding, making use of social cues. There's one other thing that I want to point back to that came up for me when you were initially describing the, the research and stuff on this. And that is also the other observation that I have made when it comes to these interactions between neurodivergent and neurotypical people. Neurodivergent people often get accused of being selfish. And I kind of wonder if the things that you're talking about here also kind of factor in there. So like as somebody with ADHD, I see tons of stuff on social media and I've, I have this and I've talked to my other friends that have this and it's that whole, um, somebody's telling you their story and then you relay a story back to them that's about you. And then people view that as selfishness. Well, why are you not listening to me? Why are you only wanting to talk about you? Or the other thing that tends to happen for me is I'll be in a conversation with somebody and I am having such a hard time focusing on what they're saying and I zone the fuck out and like I'll, I'll be in and out a lot. Like I won't really have registered anything that they, even if I'm staring right at them won't have registered anything they've said for like three or four minutes and then my brain will pick up on something and then I can respond but I missed a bunch in between and so they think that I wasn't paying attention and that I don't care. And then the other thing that happens too is that somebody will be talking about something and one tiny thing that they said reminded my brain of something that I think is related to that, but for them it would not be related at all. And so I start talking about this thing that now I am thinking of because the thing they said triggered me to think about this thing over here. But a lot of the things that you were talking about, Autumn, that actually would explain a lot of that, that overload of information, the looking for the dopamine hit that's in there somewhere. To me, that explains a lot of those things. And I do kind of wonder if that is where some of our perceived selfishness comes from, is the fact that we are on overload all the time, picking up on all of these social cues and trying to process them and make use of them quickly. Almost definitely. And what you said right there, that idea of having all these different connections and then coming back into the conversation. I've heard some people refer to that as like dolphin diving, because essentially you both start out at the same visible point above the water. You dive under and you see 48 other things that are all connected. But when you pop up, you're a mile away and people have no idea how you got there. But that would go back to that idea of hyperconnectivity between the areas of the brain. Because you have more connective bits and possibly are even producing more information at rest, you are making so many more connections and you have so much more information. And then when you add in things like executive functioning issues, which can affect memory, you're also coming up with now 200 more items relevant just to what they're talking about. We're not even talking about social norms or appropriate interactions. Just the content that they gave you has produced 200 different new thoughts. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot to deal with. It really is when we come down to it. And when they say that we don't pick up on social cues, what essentially they're saying is we're socializing wrong. Even that study, they didn't say it because they dressed it up in science, but ADHD people are picking up on the wrong social cue. And that if we medicate them, then we can make them pick up on the right social cue. And so essentially, we're just picking up on social cues. It's not the ones that you wanted, one. And two, we're seeing a lot more of the information than you realize you're providing and having to deal with that in the interaction. And three, 
we have a neurodivergent brain that's doing a thousand different other things while we're trying our best to focus on you. And so, yes, I do think that is part of it. And then as to the bringing up our own experiences, I think part of that ties back into the we are too direct when communicating. Because when I see neurotypical people trying to relate, they try to find ways that give the innuendo and suggest the idea that they understand your experience without saying they understand it. Because again, I don't understand why, but neurotypical people cannot, are not allowed to just use words directly. And so I think a lot of times when neurodivergent people bring up the fact that I too have had a similar experience, it's not an attempt to be selfish. It's an attempt to directly communicate, I also understand your experience. We are just saying it directly, which comes across, for whatever reason, as offensive. But again, when you talk to most other neurodivergent people that I've seen in the community, and they, they talk about this subject of like, oh, when somebody else brings up their own thing, they're like, no, I don't feel like I'm being one-upped. I feel like I'm being understood. And I think this also feeds right back into the whole premise of this episode, the gaslighting. I think neurodivergent people bring this up a lot because a lot of time neurodivergent people are not understood and we are not seen and our experiences are turned into horses when they are actually cows. And so when another neurodivergent people says, oh my God, I struggle with time blindness too. I get that. Here's a story relevant to that that explains how I understand it. We don't feel one up. We feel seen. We feel like, oh my God, you actually got the information that I was conveying. And not only did you get the information that I was conveying, but that's what's happening to me. I'm not alone. I'm not a freak. This is okay. And so again, I think this is almost like a cultural difference between the neurotypical and the neurodivergent people where we're trying to just connect with people. And the neurotypicals are like, first off, you can't just say you connect. You just have to hint at it and dance about it. And second, well, why do you have to bring it up anyway? Because we all have the same experiences. But when you're neurodivergent, no, you don't. And so it's wonderful to have somebody give you that information that says, oh, my experience is also different in a way similar to yours. Yeah, I think that is definitely true, that kind of cultural difference, because other neurodivergent people, when you share your experience with them that relates to their experience, there is kind of almost this, almost like this moment of giddiness where it's like, oh, you have that too. And you definitely don't get that with neurotypical people. Like a lot of times with neurotypical people, you get that look like, why are you saying, I was talking about me. Why are you interjecting with your own experience? Why don't you listen to what's going on with me? I am hurt because you obviously care more about yourself than you do about me. And neurodivergent people don't see it the same way. To them, it's like, oh, you really are trying to connect to me. Oh, you actually do get it. And it's kind of fun swapping these stories that around everybody else makes us feel kind of awkward and ostracized. There's one other thing that I wanted to note here that I think might also be tied into the to the social cues conversation. And I saw something about this on an Instagram reel recently, and I can't remember what the fucking term was that they used for it, but I found it really interesting. They kind of did it on the reel as a comedic thing where somebody says something and you say what and then you answer their question or you respond to them without waiting for them to repeat themselves. And it, they were talking about how so many neurodivergent people, like they, we do that, where it's, we, we say what after you say something, but it's not that we didn't hear you. It's almost like a delay in us processing what you said. We don't actually need you to repeat yourself. We need more time to process what you said so that we can respond to you. And I'd never thought about that being a thing 
But I had noticed in the past that there would be times when I would do that. And in my head, as like right after I would say what, I'm like, why the fuck did I do that? I heard them, but it was like I, I didn't immediately process it. It was almost like I needed more time to process what they said in order for me to respond to them. And since I've noticed that after seeing that Instagram reel, I noticed that so much more in other neurodivergent people that I know. Calvin does that all the time, multiple times a day. I will say something to him. He'll say, what? And then he'll immediately start responding to what I said before I even get a chance to repeat myself. Because it was not that he did not hear me or that he did not understand me. It was like he needed more time. And I think that probably is something that does happen with a lot of neurodivergent people that I did not know until recently had a term. And I wish I remembered what that term was. But anyway, I wanted to share that here because I think it's also pertinent to this conversation about social cues because I think that's part of it. I think we are taking in so much information and trying to process so much. It's almost like there is a little bit of a delay there. And it's not that we don't hear the person or that we don't understand them. It's just our brain needed a little bit longer to process that so that we could actually respond. But I think it's another one of those ways in which some neurotypical people would look at that and view that as being rude or selfish or us not actually paying attention to them. And I don't think it's that at all. That idea also lends itself to the possibility that the neurodivergent brain just is quite literally taking in more sensory data. Because when you're talking about hearing somebody and you think you didn't and you say what, but then you realize you did. Like we know about short-term memory and we know about long-term memory, but for most of our senses, there's also some little piece in between before it gets to our short-term memory, before it gets processed. And so I think it's called echoic memory when it comes to hearing, but essentially the sensory, the raw data before it means anything or is words, it's just sounds that are vibrating our ear hairs, goes into our ear and there's a little part of our brain that acts as this few second buffer before it can get shifted upward so that we can process it, have it in our short-term memory, review it, decide if we want to keep it and put in our long-term memory. But I've always wondered, is that part of just I'm taking in more sensory data than my meat sack is capable of handling, you know what I mean? That's just my personal little theory is we have too much sensory data. We do not automatically process it and eradicate what is useless because we're not really sure what is or isn't useless. And then we're stuck trying to buffer all of it. We don't just have in a conversation 2000 bits of data that we have to process and deal with in return. We could have 2 million bits of data that we have to process, deal with in return. And I feel like this conversation also goes into another one of the ways in which society gaslights us, which is saying that we have limited empathy. And this does come across, I feel like, with ADHD people as often being told that you're selfish or you're not selfless enough or you're not paying enough attention to others. And then with autistic people, it's just that we straight up don't know how to feel what other people feel. But again, if you look at that data that says we produce more information at rest, we do not have the synaptic pruning that neurotypical people do. So we have hyperconnectivity and more information. And if you look at the fact that as some experts in the field will say that any person neurodivergent in a neurotypical society is experiencing some form of trauma and being traumatized by society to some degree, a lot of us that are neurodivergent are also develop a hyper awareness to other people's states because we have to do that in order to survive. Just like a kid that needs to be worried about whether or not mom's tone means I'm going to get hit or not, we have to be worried about whether or not that tone means I'm going to get fired or if I don't do this right, am I going to no longer be your friend? Like we have to worry about these things constantly, which increases the likelihood that we're hyper aware of states. So do we have limited empathy 
or as many people in the community are starting to explore this and are allowed to voice what their experiences actually are instead of what science thinks they should be based on their study population of six-year-old white boys and nothing else, is it more likely that we are hyper-empathetic? And it's turning out more and more likely from people in the community, as well as experts in the community. And when I say experts, these are licensed mental health professionals that are sharing what they're seeing in their treatment and their specific work with neurodivergent individuals, that ADHD and autistic people are actually hyper-empathetic. We do pick up on people's emotions to an extreme state, partially because we're terrified of them and need to figure out how to survive this situation, but also just because we have access to so much more data. And if you look at some of the professionals that have shared their experiences with this, they will note that even people that think they have no empathy or have difficulty identifying their own emotions still are likely to objectively pick up on other people's emotional states better than an average neurotypical. What's always been really interesting to me about this is that very many of the people that are closest to me in my life, the people that I have loved the most, a lot of them are autistic. And it has driven me absolutely up the wall when I hear people say that autistic people have no empathy or they struggle with empathy or understanding how other people feel. Because as somebody who has spent large portions of my life around autistic people, day to day, being around them on a regular basis and seeing how they interact with me and how they interact with other people. What I always say to those folks that think that autistic people don't have any empathy is you don't know any autistic people, do you? Because one of the things that I have always noticed about the autistic people in my life is that they are actually very sensitive. Sensitive to the point where they get headaches and they are physically in pain, they get nauseated and things like that when they spend too much time around other people, especially emotional, very emotionally expressive people. And all of the autistic people that I know, I would also describe as being very loyal and loving and absolutely there for you when you need them. None of that to me says... This person has no empathy. This person has no real depth of emotion. Nothing about what I have seen in the autistic people in my life would suggest that autistic people have no empathy, that they have limited ability to connect with others or to feel other people's feelings or to understand how other people are feeling. I have only seen evidence to the contrary of that. And so it really frustrates me when people say that. And one of the other things that I've noticed when it comes to that is that every person that I know who is a parent of an autistic child, you asked to describe their child in five words. Loving and sensitive would be in those first five words. I have seen it time and time and time again when I have seen parents of autistic children describing their children. They use the words loving and sensitive. And is that, you know, across the board? No, I can't say that it is. But anecdotal evidence from my own experience every fucking time. And I do think that a big part of the reason why autistic people get that bad rap and why ADHD people get this bad rap of like, oh, you're not empathetic, you're selfish, whatever, is because we get really fucking overloaded. 
I, for a really long time, thought that I struggled with empathy, that I didn't understand how other people were feeling, that I didn't understand emotions themselves, because I do struggle with emotional expression. It's one of the things that I've worked on the most in therapy. I feel very disconnected from my emotions. And what I have actually learned over the course of these last few years and over the course of my therapy is that it is not that I don't have emotions. It is not that I don't understand and empathize with other people's emotions. It is that it is so overwhelming that I shut myself down from it as a coping mechanism because I cannot handle the level of intensity of feeling that I have. I do not know how to properly manage it and regulate it. And that is what I've been working on in therapy is being able to regulate the intensity of emotion that I feel in myself, but also the, the level of intensity of emotion that I feel from others and I shut myself down from emotion and I shut myself away from people for most of my life and kept everybody at arm's distance not because I did not have feelings or couldn't understand feelings or form connections but because the intensity with which I felt was so overwhelming that the only way for me to cope with it before was to completely shut it down because I did not have any way to regulate it and to handle it. And there are a lot of neurodivergent people that say that. In one of the uh, articles I'll put up there, and this is, again, we're just talking to people in the community because science doesn't really care about our empathy or lack thereof as long as it doesn't interfere with them any, was the idea that they felt so much from other people, that they felt so much empathy, it was painful. And that is an experience a lot of people have reported having. It's just too much. And I think the other bad rap that comes here with neurodivergent people is a lot of times we're considered as having flat affect or inappropriate affect. And so essentially, we're also not reflecting back to the neurotypicals in a way that they understand. And so Ivy, a lot of the time, maintains a flat affect. There could be a billion reasons for that, you know, among the fact that she's got way too much sensory data and she just doesn't have the motivation to try and keep a smile on her face because that takes muscular effort. If you don't think so, it does. And so you have to have resources to keep doing that. And so if you're not able to provide the correct facial expression, if you're not able to do the right dance with the neurotypical people, they think you don't have empathy. Even though you can feel what they're feeling inside of you, even though you can reflect back to them which I've done on occasion almost their entire life story based on the amount of emotion that is dripping off of them in that moment, they will still think you're not being empathetic because you're not showing the appropriate emotional reactions outward and you're being too direct with what you're expressing with them. And that's not necessarily about empathy. That's about a communication glitch between neurodivergent and neurotypical people and the neurotypical people are turning around and saying, well, that's because you don't have feelings. You have no heart. You can't understand what I'm feeling. Probably not the case is what we're seeing more and more. Probably I know more about what you're feeling than you do, in part because I have more sensory data and in part because I am different and I've been told I'm different and I know I'm different. I have to know about emotions so that I don't get kicked out of society. <laughs> And so now let's move into the last of the gaslighting statements we're going to deal with today. And again, like we said, these are not all of the gaslighting statements we get, but these are a few that we wanted to highlight. And the last one is that you are too concerned about the diagnosis. You're too concerned about the label. We're all human. What does it matter if you're autistic or ADHD? Why is it so important for you to have that label? You just need to focus on being human and connecting with other humans, not on labels like neurodivergent or neurotypical or autistic or ADHD. I almost chose this one for the one that annoys me the most because it, it is almost the most gaslighty because 
when you are neurodivergent in a neurotypical society, especially when you do not know that you are neurodivergent, you grow up and you go your entire life thinking that you are wrong. You are a failure. You are stupid. You are bad. You are lazy. You are all of these things that the world keeps suggesting you are because you have the same experiences and the same brain and the same perceptions as this other neurotypical person. And since you can't accomplish what they are accomplishing, obviously you are failing. And when you get that diagnosis, when somebody says finally, oh no, honey, you're ADHD, you have autism. You can find all of these social media videos out there of people that have finally gotten the diagnosis. They've self-diagnosed for, you know, three, four, five years and they finally got the diagnosis and they break down into tears because it is, is it is such a validation and affirmation that what you are is not wrong. When I found out, when somebody said to me, I am autistic, yes, I became attached to that label and I still am, because if I am not autistic, then I am failing horribly. But when I stop and realize, no, I am autistic, I am taking in more sensory data than the neurotypical people. I am making more connections. I have more reaction. I have all of these things that are different than their experience. Then, 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 then do I get to see, no, I am, I am different. I am not wrong. I am not bad. I did not choose to be this way. I am just different. And there is such a relief in knowing that you're a decent wonderful, amazing person that is very much doing the best that they can. I gotta be honest, all of the diagnoses that I have gotten over the years, I fought tooth and nail against them for a long time because I was not willing to accept them. Part of that is because of all the mental health issues that exist in my family. It made it terrifying to me the idea that I could have something diagnosable because there was a part of me when I was growing up that thought I just got to get away from my family. If I just get away from my family, if I just get away from these circumstances, everything will be fine. I'll be normal. I'll have a normal relationship and a normal life and I'll have kids of my own and I'll be normal. If I can just get away from my family, I'll be happy. And then when I got away from my family, I still was not happy. And I really resented the idea. Family was still influencing me even when I got away from them. And not just the trauma, but their bad genes. That they had the fucking audacity to have children with how terrible the genetics are for mental health on both sides of my family. And I had a really, really hard time accepting a diagnosis. It was not a comforting thing to me initially. It was something I really, really struggled with. And that's part of the reason I, I'm such an ardent advocate for destigmatizing these quote unquote mental illnesses or mental health issues. I am so supportive of destigmatizing that because what I have had to come to terms with over the years after getting my own diagnoses is that these things do not make me fucked up beyond all hope. These things are not entirely just flaws in my character. They're not just things that make me broken and useless and worthless to everybody because that is how I perceived them. And that was a lie 
It wasn't until I actually made peace with the diagnoses that I had that I started being able to do something with my life and find some happiness. But because of all the work that I have done now, I'm not trying to just denial my way out of it. I'm not just focused on the things that make my life more difficult as a result of having these diagnoses. To me, now, I'm able to look at them with a vantage point of duality. For every bit of darkness, there is light. And in every neurodivergent person I know, myself included, there is a tremendous amount of light in us. There is a tremendous amount of goodness and brilliance and beauty and uniqueness and resourcefulness and just unimaginable intelligence. There is such a light in us that so rarely is seen because what is mostly seen are our symptoms and our meltdowns and our depression and our anxiety and the things that make us difficult for other people to deal with. And the only way other people are ever going to see that is if we start seeing it in ourselves first. If we start making peace with the darkness in us and our own shadows and start working with that to enhance and bring out the light in us, that is the only way that people will ever actually see us for who we really are is if we start accepting ourselves and we start seeing our own light and we start working with our shadows and we destigmatize mental illness. We are different. That does not mean we are broken and fucked up. It may mean that we are an acquired taste. It may mean that we are not for everybody. But by God, we are not fucked up and broken and wrong. We are different. And there is so much goodness in us that we can shine out to others. And if they still don't accept us, then they still don't accept us. And that's on them. But that doesn't mean that we cannot accept ourselves. And with what you said right there, I would argue that is another reason why these diagnoses are so important, why these labels are so important to so many of us, because they are a way to claim what is different about us and not just explain it to others, but to hold it and be proud of the differences and to acknowledge that light. And I love that there is terms like neurodivergent and that autistic is now a word instead of person with autism. And I think that's why these labels are important for us, too, is because we can own that label. If I am given that label of PTSD or borderline or bipolar or autistic or ADHD, and that is part of who I am and part of what I am experiencing, I can own that. And I can join with other people in that community that experience things similar to me, that have labels similar to mine. And we can stand up and we can see the light that we have in each other and we can see the positive things that we offer. And we can make these labels not just about the negative things that make us hard to deal with in society, but we can make these labels about all of what we are, all the pieces. There was actually, I think I saw this on Facebook, but it's from Twitter, and I'll have Ivy put this on the resource page as well. Somebody said, undiagnosed neurodivergence is like being handed a video game that has been set to hard mode. But having people tell you over and over, it's easy. Why do you keep dying? Diagnosis is learning the game is on hard mode. It doesn't make it easier, but you can now strategize. And I would say with that also, if you are stuck in a game that is on hard mode all the time while everybody else is playing on easy mode, it also lets you realize, oh shit, that's why things are so difficult for me. And it gives you the option, like Ivy said, her path isn't the neurotypical path, to choose to do side quests, to choose to do other things, to follow a path that will allow you to bloom and that will allow your light to shine. And the last thing I do want to note on this, and this is, this is, potentially a contentious point for some, but I 
agree with this. It's from a autistic researcher. I think she's out of like New Zealand or Australia, but this is what she does. She is a mental health professional. And one of the things she said in one of her, her TikTok videos is she said that being neurodivergent in this world is inherently traumatic. It's like you're in an abusive relationship with the world. Neurotymical dominance hierarchies are perpetuated through aggression. And the reason you have suffered so much is because you have been placed in the bottom of the hierarchy. When you attempt to climb the hierarchy, you are met with aggression and manipulation. And I think this is one of the other reasons why diagnoses are so important with us, because one of the big ways in which society gaslights us is in saying that they're not gaslighting us at all. They're not traumatizing us all. They're not manipulating us at all. They're not hurting us by taking away these behaviors and forcing us to mask so that we can be accepted. And when we accept this label and we own this label, we can say, no, you are manipulating me. You are gaslighting me. This is trauma I experience. And how much of this neurodivergent experience that is such a struggle for me is because I am neurodivergent and how much of this that is a struggle for me is because this society is inherently traumatizing to the type of person I am. And I think that is a big question that we are only now beginning to get the answer to because this most recent generation of even boomers and Gen X and millennials who are all late diagnosed are all coming to the party after 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of thinking they are just failing as a human and finally realizing that they're neurodivergent, that they're different, that they've been traumatized for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years by society that said they weren't traumatizing them. Well, this next generation will be the first that may actually have some accurate diagnosis that will have a community of people like you and me behind them saying, no, it doesn't mean you're bad if you're autistic. No, you're not lazy if you're ADHD. And they will have our support. And maybe in the next two, three, four generations, we will begin to see what it possibly looks like to be neurodivergent without the inherent trauma forced on us by society through the ignorance of our understanding of neurodivergence and that we are in fact neurodivergent. All right, so with all of that, I know we got a little soapboxy here and there, but it is very difficult when you are neurodivergent living in a neurotypical society because there are so many ways, big and little, which we are gaslit. And we just wanted today to bring you a little bit of the science, a little bit of the people from the community of people like you saying, you know what, you're not the crazy one. Yes, you are different. Yes, you do have more things to deal with. Yes, your video game is on hard mode. Of course you're struggling with that because other people's video games aren't set to that level. And so we just want you to know you're not alone and you're not insane. And there are other people like you out there. And like Ivy said, there are so many good things. For every negative that we have, every struggle that we experience, there are so many positive things as well. And like I said, all of the stuff that we talked about throughout today that I was able to find research articles for, TikTok videos, um, information from the communities, I will have Ivy posted on our resource page. Probably a lot of dry stuff intermixed with TikTok is what that's going to look like. Ivy, do you want to go ahead and give them our connecty bits so they know where to find all that? Uh, you can find us at our website, www.differentfunctional.com. We are on Facebook as Different Functional and on Instagram and TikTok as Different Underscore Functional. If you would like to support the podcast financially, we are on Patreon as Different Functional. If you'd like to reach out to us in a little bit more of an old school way, you could send us an email. I'd give you an address for snail mail, but we don't have an address. You can't have our addresses uh, and we don't have a P.O. box for the business. But you could email us if you want to at differentfunctional at gmail.com. 
www.redbubble.com. If you want to buy some of our merch, we are on TeePublic. I'm going to get some of that stuff put up on Redbubble too, because TeePublic, they are stingy bitches about letting you be part of their search results. It's a click, apparently. You got to be part of the in crowd. So if you do want to see our merch on there, the best way to find that is to go to our website. And there on the homepage, there is a link that will take you directly to our TeePublic storefront. And like I said, sometime soon, hopefully, if I can get past my procrastination, I will get our merch put on Redbubble too, which should, I think, if my research is correct, allow you to actually search for us without us having to be part of one of the, uh, the, the clicks. We don't have to be one of the cool kids to be searchable on there, I don't think. And I do definitely encourage you to check out our merch, whether that is on the Tee Public and you have to go through the hoops or once we get it on Redbubble. I am actually going to be putting up a line of ND disclaimer that we will be creating and putting out there. And it does kind of take some of these things that we've been gaslit about and twist them back so that they're a little bit more truthful. So for example, that whole idea that we don't understand hierarchical relationships, I've got a big old warning sticker says, disclaimer, egalitarian, refuses to blindly comply with hierarchical social structure as all humans are deserving of respect and dignity. So it takes those gaslit statements, rephrases them into a more objective truth about what's actually happening, and gives a disclaimer to others around you so they automatically know about it in a way that doesn't require you to talk to them. So this is some excellent merch. We're helping you avoid social interactions while also allowing you to speak up for your community and yourself. So definitely check out our merch and definitely do interact with us on social media. We love hearing from you. We love all of the support and we are so happy you are here listening and supporting us so that we can continue doing this. As always, remember, different does not mean defective. <laughs>